House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Okay, we're back. And uh, joining us, like we uh, said earlier, we have a, a reporter, a journalist, and uh, he spent 50 years in the making of Manson Exposed, and uh, so joining us is Ivor Davis. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, wow, that's quite a book you've got. Um, tell us how you got into this. Like, where 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 was it um, that started you on this journey? Well, very simply, what happened was this: that I was at the time West Coast correspondent for one of the biggest London newspapers of the era of the of the of that time called the London Daily Express I was their American correspondent and I, and in that role they had me covering all sorts of big stories small stories um, I mean I was covering the moon landing in 1969 I was covering the year before uh, in the kitchen with Bobby Kennedy when he was shot so I was handling some of the biggest stories and then in August of 1969, the office called me from London and said, there's a story on the wires. Um, the wire services are putting out a story saying there were some murders at a very respectable area of Beverly Hills on Cielo Drive. And they said, get over there and tell us what's going on. Who, who, are, the, who are the victims? And, and as much as you can, because we know very little. So off I went. I lived about... 20 minutes away uh, driving to, to Beverly Hills, Cielo Drive in the canyon of a very respectable neighborhood. And when I got there, the media were gathering outside the gates of Cielo Drive and we didn't know what was going on. And as the day wore on, the horrendous details of what had happened on Cielo Drive came out. And of course, we discovered the murder of the eight-month pregnant actress Sharon Tate and her friends, including Jay Sebring, who was a celebrity hairstylist to the biggest names in Hollywood. They were all dead. We didn't know how, and we just hung around, hanging on to every little piece of information, plus the fact that, as you can imagine, with communications not quite the way they are today, with no Internet, um, rumors were wild, and we wondered who had been murdered, why they had been murdered and the stories that came out were pretty wild for the first a few days. What, what were some of the stories? Like when, when you found out there was Sharon Tate involved and it was all kind of celebrity, uh, what did people believe at first? Well, first of all, um, I was pretty shocked because I knew Sharon and I would interviewed her on the Valley of the Dolls movie, which, was, which had come out a little earlier, a year or two earlier. So she was an up-and-coming star at the 20th Century Fox Studios. And to be honest with you, the stories, because they were, the sort of rumors were flying around, there was a, I mean, first of all, they said it was a mob hit. Second, they said there was some kind of orgy involving drugs. Another one was that there was a drug deal went wrong. And so much wild stuff. And so many stories about maybe the Ku Klux Klan, because some of the bodies supposedly had white hoods on them. So you can imagine it was a festering um, 
a festering bunch of rumors, and none of us knew the difference, none of us could sort it out until uh, eventually we got the names of the people, and even then, it took a long time for the truth to come out. So what do you, what do you think um, um, the relationship was that Manson had um, with Sharon Tate and the whole group? Because there's so many rumors about different things. Uh, do you think that he knew who she was and this was a planned idea, or was it not? In my opinion, he didn't know who she was. He may have spotted her at the house once when Terry Melcher, who, um, who actually, Terry Melcher was the son of Doris Day and a record producer, and he became a friend of Manson and promised Manson he would give him a recording contract, lived there before Sharon Tate. But in my opinion, he didn't know who lived at the house. He just sent out Charles Tex Watson and the other girls to bump off everybody who was in the house. Um, it's a somewhat complex story, but in my opinion, the reason he did it, he did the murders and he ordered the murders of Sharon Tate and then 24 hours later the murders of Lino and Rosemary Balabianca because he was trying to cover up the murder uh, that happened July 27th, uh, two weeks before the Sharon Tate murder, of a guy called Gary Hinman, a musician who was murdered by Bobby Beausoleil. And Bobby Beausoleil was a friend of Manson, uh, also a musician, who had killed Gary Hinman at the instruction of Charles Manson. And Mr. Beausoleil was sitting in prison facing first-degree murder and the gas chamber. And Manson felt that he was the one that sent him out to kill Gary Hinman. So he, believe it or not, and, and, and a lot of people dispute this, but in my um, experience and in my investigation, that Manson set up these two senseless killings to try and take the heat off of Bobby Beausoleil and so that the cops would look at the murder of Sharon Tate and look at the murder of the Labiancas and say, hey, I don't think we've got the right guy for the murder of Gary Hinman because there's a gang of black militant killers out there murdering people, so Mr. Beausoleil should be set free. I mean, it's a crazy, crazy theory, but that's the one I believe is the truth. However, as you know, and as the world knows, Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor, came up with a new theory. He, he claimed that Manson brainwashed his disciples to believe that the Beatles' white album songs like Helter Skelter and Piggies and Revolution was the real reason that there's a sort of secret message to tell Charlie to kill so that they would start a race war and Charlie would escape the race war having been forewarned that there was going to be a race war. I mean, as we talk, um, Al, and as, we, as you're listening, I'm sure some of your listeners are saying, this guy is crazy and this theory is mad. But I honestly believe that was the true theory for the murders, that it was a cover-up, it was to throw Cox off the scent of Manson's close ally, Bobby Beausoleil. Well, well do you think that, uh, that the whole helter-skelter and that whole race war, um, he, he might have created that, like we had Diane um, Lake on and Snake, and, and she said that, um, you know, he would play that, 
you know, over and over and over again and all that. So do you think he was, he was just using that, knowing that he wanted to do something else? Like, you know what I'm saying? He was. Yes. Yeah, well, um, I, I mean, Diane Lake uh, wrote a terrific book. I mean, it was a young woman, as you know, who was 14 when she was turned over to the clutches of Manson. And, and she and everybody that I spoke to soon after the murders and when the arrests were made also said to me that Charlie brainwashed us, that Charlie played the White Album again and again and again, and he made us believe, and I think he made them believe because whether Diane took heavy drugs or was given heavy drugs, but I know that many members of the Manson family were under the influence of LSD and mescaline and other, other drugs that Manson handed out. So I have no doubt whatsoever that, as Diane Lake probably told you, that the members of the Manson family believed the theory that the Beatles were telling him, uh, giving him a, a kind of a, 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 a method of, of this, this uh, race war. They believed it because they were brainwashed to believe it. And so I, I don't dispute that argument, but I can tell you that I had traveled with the Beatles in 1964. I got to know them very well on the, on the first American tour. And I knew the lyrics of the Beatles music, and I thought, well, how could a song like Helter Skelter, and I knew the lyrics of Helter Skelter, be perceived as a, a, a blueprint for um, a race war? I mean, come on, look at the lyrics, <laughs> listen to the lyrics. And some of the other songs could be, were so twisted out of fashion, if you like. Uh, and yet, as, as you know, because you've had these people on your show, they believed it, uh, because Manson was an incredible snake oil salesman. Yeah. And Helter Skelter was about a, a ride or something, wasn't it, at the fair? It was. A Helter Skelter was a, um, in England, there was a, an up and down ride uh, on a fairground that Paul McCartney wrote a song about. But the other thing that, that adds up to this kind of outrageous motive for the murders is, of course, that Manson looked at the Bible and said there were the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, and there were four horsemen, and they were wearing uh, breastplates, and they had the hair of women. And he said to his demented followers, well, the Beatles have the hair of women. The Beatles have breastplates, except they don't call them breastplates, they call them guitars. So, so this thesis uh, was, was uh, reinforced by Manson, and as I said, they began to believe it. And the guys that I spoke to soon after the arrest, Paul Watkins and Brooks Poston, believed, believed this crazy Beatles theory. And then, of course, the amazing thing is, as you know, and most of people who know murders and listen to you know, that Vincent Bugliosi used that as the, the, the root of his prosecution. And he mm -hmm. persuaded the jury to believe that. And they convicted Manson. Because if they hadn't have convicted Manson, who knows? I mean, if they'd gone with the theory that I mentioned, which was a, 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 a two murders to throw the police off the scent for the murder of Gary Hinman, Manson might have got off free and Bugliosi didn't want to risk that. So he went with the most outrageous motive and he got away with it. He got convictions. Oh, go ahead. So do you think? No, that's uh, it. And I mean, uh, so so it worked. 
um, you know, the, the ends justified the means for Vincent Bugliosi, who was really fierce and passionate and so almost you, obsessed with getting a conviction in this case. Do you think that Bugliosi uh, thought the same thing you do and just uh, went with what he knew would get Manson convicted? Uh, well, I think of... he did. I, 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 I think you're right on that. Uh, I mean, here's, here's what happened. Um, and I, this may sound somewhat self-serving, but in 1970, before the trial began, I had written a very quick book in which I outlined the blueprint of the, of, of, of the White Album and, and, and the lyrics of the song. And then years later... Aaron Stovitz, who was once the lead prosecutor before he, he fell out of favor and Mr. Bugliosi stepped into the number one chair, Stovitz said to me, Vince got hold of your book and used the Manson um, Beatles made me do it theory. And um, he said that to me and I thought, well, you know, uh, maybe this was sour grace because, because Mr. Stovitz was the was the chief prosecutor until he opened his big mouth and the district attorney threw him out and told Vince to take over. So I, I always thought it was a pretty um, iffy um, motive, but there you go. The thing is, it worked. It got the prosecution to, uh, to make the jury believe that that was the reason for the murders. And whatever whatever you say today, in retrospect, um, you've got to say, you've got to give... Bugliosi credit, he got the convictions, even though um, we all thought it was pretty way out, a, a crazy, crazy motive. So when we go, let's, let's talk about the uh, relationship with um, Manson and uh, Terry Melcher, as well as, um, you know, the Beach Boys. Uh, how did that really go <laughs> down? Well, this was the interesting thing, that when Manson was in prison, he learned to play the guitar. He started writing music. When he came out, he made a big effort to make the connection with people in the music industry because he wanted to become a rock star. As, as it happened, Manson turned out to be, uh, you know, the greatest, the most notorious killer since Jack the Ripper. But that's another story. And along the way, Mr. Manson became connected to Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys lived in a brilliant man mansion on Sunset Boulevard. Poor Dennis was one of the kind of the neglected children of the Beach Boys. I mean, he wanted, he wanted more um, acknowledgement from his brothers, and he, and, and he ran into Manson. They, they, were, they spoke the same language. They were both into, into music, and Manson conned Mr. Wilson, so much so, as I say, that, that he and the girls moved into Dennis's house for several months. And Dennis got, um, got Charles Manson. He got all the sex he wanted. Charles Manson provided him in, with a lots of drugs. And along the way, um, Dennis repaid Manson by bringing all the rock stars to his mansion where they, they were forced to listen to... They were forced to listen to Charles Manson singing, auditioning every night in the house. And Manson auditioned for, for like John Phillips, the Mamas and the Papas, Cass Elliot, Neil Young, you name it. They all flocked to Dennis Wilson's house. And Manson was thrilled because he had this international audience of top rock people. 
and, and as a result of becoming a friend and a, a house guest of Dennis Wilson, he met Terry Melcher. And Melcher was looking for new talent, and that's how the three of them got together, and that's how the connection between Melcher and, and Charlie Manson took place. And Manson knew, of course, that Melcher lived on Cielo Drive. And Manson knew, I believe, that Terry Melcher had left Cielo Drive, although he wasn't sure who was living there. So the idea of him sending the killers out to get revenge on Terry Melcher, because Terry Melcher never gave him a recording contract, is not true, in my opinion. Um, he, he went out there, he sent them for the reasons I said, and... Manson was obsessed with becoming a rock star, but of course, it never quite happened. And one other thing that I'm sure you know about, a lot of people know about, because of his closeness to Dennis Wilson, Charles Manson had written one song called Cease to Exist, and he gave it to Dennis Wilson to use on a Beach Boys album. Dennis Wilson put it on a Beach Boys single, but Dennis Wilson changed the name of the song and never gave Charles Manson credit for that song. And Manson was royally angry at that and, um, and was not very upset at Mr. Mr. Wilson. So it was a rather uh, intense relationship between Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, Charlie Manson, and Terry Melcher, who was the record producer for the for groups like The Birds. And, um, and, and in some way, in, in his own mind, Manson thought that that Mr. Melcher would turn him into a rock star. It never happened. Yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, wow. So, how do you think that affected him? But like, when uh, there's different stories about him being really angry and and um, and moving out, and some people say he was kicked out of the the apartment that the Wilsons had or the house. Um, yes, he was. I mean. Here's what happened. Poor Dennis Wilson was out of control. Dennis was into drugs. He was into booze. He was into sex. Uh, he became beholden to Manson because Manson provided him hot and cold running sex with the girls because when Manson told his girls, you sleep with Dennis or you sleep with this person or that person, the girls obeyed. And it was kind of, you know, like candy to a child. That was Dennis Wilson. Dennis Wilson finally kind of threw up his hands, went to Brothers Records and said to the guy running the show, look, um, I'm, I'm leaving my house um, and, and I want you to get rid of these people who I can't get rid of. And Dennis Wilson then hid out at a friend's house in Malibu while the, uh, the Brothers Records executives um, ended up evicting Manson and the girls, telling them they had to leave the house. And that's how the only way they got they got uh, Mr. Manson and the girls out of the house. So Dennis Wilson kind of chickened out, and Dennis Wilson then became rather fearful of Manson, and Dennis Wilson believed when Manson was arrested that maybe Manson was off for revenge to him as well. So um, a lot of paranoid behavior from everyone. Uh, now, uh, since you were there at the beginning and you're, and you're putting out this book, Exposed, um, is there something or are there some things that um, the people in the mainstream um, are not aware of as far as Chan Manson goes? Well, there is so much stuff that this story is complex. It has so many leading characters. 
One of the one of the, the saddest characters in this all was Roman Polanski. Roman Polanski, of course, uh, as some people know, is still around. He just made a new movie in in France, which could come up for the best foreign Oscar film next year, and and, and certainly will be a contender about the um, affair of, uh, of the French officer Dreyfus. And and of course. Mr. Polanski won an Oscar already, but after the murder. So Roman Polanski is married to this gorgeous, gorgeous actress who's expecting his first child. And then he, ca- he gets called in London and he's told, she's dead. Your, your baby is dead. He comes to L.A. and I was there when he arrived. He is distraught. He is uh, absolutely beyond himself, not surprisingly. And he thinks at the beginning somebody in the show business circle, maybe his friends were responsible for the murder of Sharon. The cops are clueless at the time. They don't solve the case for four months. And so Roman Polanski, who'd gone through the horrible World War II, losing his, his mother in a concentration camp, who died in a concentration camp, his father was in a concentration camp, but survived. Mr. Polanski has this other tragedy in his life. He comes back and he starts to investigate his friends in show business. And in fact, um, one interesting twist is that he thought at the beginning that maybe, maybe John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas might have been responsible for Sharon's murder. So why did he think that? Because he knew he had a, a, a very quick affair with Michelle Phillips the wife of John Phillips, in London. And he assumed that maybe John Phillips discovered this and, and in, in, a, in a wild act of revenge arranged for the murder of Sharon. So Mr. Polanski, for the first two or three months, played detective. He went to John Phillips' house. He, he borrowed um, uh, equipment from the police department so that he could go around and check for blood stains in John Phillips' car. He looked for a weapon in John Phillips' car. He found nothing, of course. It was all in his mind, and um, poor Polanski was tortured, and is still tortured, but uh, for another for other reason. So the Polanski story was a sad one. And one thing that many people don't know is, is that Manson, of course, killed and arranged for the murders of all the people that we know were murdered. But there were other collateral damage victims in this awful case, including Roman Polanski, including Terry Melcher, and including Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. And the fallout uh, it just almost continues to this very day of people who were affected, have been affected, uh, and some have survived. I think you discovered that Diane Lake is a, a very uh, bright lady having gone through hell in her early years. So there are many people who are scarred today by their involvement with Charles Manson. There's several followers still to this day, right? And there's still a family, isn't there? There are still some devotees. And the reason I know that is I never went to Charles Manson's funeral in 2017. But I know that I think Sandra Good and Squeaky From. Um, who are some of the most loyal devotees of Manson, even today, went to the funeral, went to the, 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 uh, 
went to see Manson in the coffin before he was um, cremated. And then, um, I, as I say, I never went to the funeral, but there were like 10 people who were there. And this is pretty horrendous in my mind, but what happened was, after Manson was cremated, instead of getting his ashes and throwing them into the river or into the mountains, many of the devotees got Charles Manson's cremated ashes and instead of throwing them into the into the water, they, they actually covered their faces with ashes of Charles Manson. So it gives you some idea that there are some, some loyalists still hanging around uh, on the perimeters and, um, and when they put uh, they, they put souvenirs into his coffin. I mean, they're there, um, they're older, uh, maybe they're not wiser, but they're certainly <laughs> those who believe that Manson was innocent. I mean, as crazy as that sounds. Uh, yeah. How, <laughs> uh, but what about, what about the um, lawsuits over, I think, the um, Michael Channels, that was his pen pal and... Uh, Yes, I, I mean, what happened was, even in death, even when he died, the controversy over Manson continued. Because as you pointed out, all of a sudden, half a dozen claimants to the body, claimants to the possessions, whatever they were, of Manson, came out of the woodwork. And after a long, like, six-month battle in court, um, Jason Freeman Manson, who was the grandson of Charles Manson, Jason got the body and got uh, and, and and got Manson's possessions and all these other people channel and were ruled out by a judge. But but the amazing thing was that um, they fought over Charles Manson's body and and uh, Jason Freeman Manson, um, who had a, a ministry and believed his 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 grandfather was innocent. Um, got the body and had the and, and then had the uh, burial and the interment and the cremation and then gave a lot of um of Manson stuff to some kind of museum that that is that is a museum of almost like a, a, a wax museum a horror museum in Las Vegas so um it, the, the the controversy over Manson continued even after even after his death and um uh, and amazing as it may seem um, by the way, um, the, the grandson, the grandson of Charles Manson, had a father called Charles Manson Jr. And Charles Manson Jr. I don't know if, if your listeners know this, but Charles Manson Jr. changed his name to get rid of the Manson name, but he could not ever shake off the fact that he was Manson's son. And then, when he was in his forties, he killed himself. So a tragedy continued for years afterwards, and still continues today, as many devotees still believe that Manson killed nobody, as Manson used to say. Yeah, his grandson um, was going to be on the show, but he wanted a $1,000 fee, so... Um, yeah, after, well, uh, you yeah. know, look, I, I, I think he never knew his father, his grandfather, that, that well. And you, I mean, it sounds as though you had researched Jason, and I kind of feel, I mean, look, the, the, he, he, does he have to pay for the sins of his grandfather? You have to feel sorry for them. Right. And I'll tell you one other little niblet. 
I had a book launch in Beverly Hills um, at the home of a writer about a month ago. And, um, and the, the owner of the, the house, who was a writer himself, invited um, a, a recording, a um, documentary filmmaker, to come along to the book launch. Um, and as I was driving to the house, um, the, uh, the host of the party for my book um, called me and said, um, have you seen the guest list? And I said, I, I went through the guest list. I said, there's a guy called, I said, there's a guy called Michael Bruner on the guest list. Do you know who Michael Bruner is and is he coming? And Paul, the owner of the house, said, no, I don't know who Michael Bruner is. And I said, Michael Bruner is Charles Manson's son. Well, I want to tell you that when I told Paul that Charles Manson's son was going to come to a party at his house, which is round the corner from Cielo Drive, he freaked out. <laughs> and he got on the phone and he disinvited Michael Bruner. <laughs> to be oh. honest with you, it would have been oh. interesting to see Michael Bruner, because I think Michael Bruner is another young man who spent most, he's now 51, I think, who mm. spent all his life, he never knew his grandfather, um, uh, his father, I should say, sorry, not his grandfather, his father. He never knew. Mary Bruner was his mother. He was adopted by um, a, a completely different family. And now, 50 years later, he suddenly realized who his father was. So um, it would have been interesting to talk to Mr. Bruner, but I would have felt that Bruner didn't know his father. And it would, and it would have been an unfair sort of almost hijacking at my book launch, but so the confrontation never took place. But you've got to understand uh, that the interesting thing, Al, is that the host freaked out when he thought, I don't want Charles Manson's son in my house. Um, uh, and so, of course, he never came. But So there are our offspring of Manson around. Many of them still don't know the true uh, depravity of their their father, their grandfather. So it continues today. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be. It's got to be a very difficult thing for any family member, um, because you get shunned like that, even though you really had nothing to do with it. It's it's not your fault. No, I mean you, you have to feel Al. You have to feel sympathy for for Michael. I mean I do. I think uh, you know he had nothing to do with who his father was, and all of a sudden he has you know, one of the most in infamous murderers in, in the, of the 20th century, who is his father. Now, how do you live with that? Tell me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the thing yeah. is, you can't, you can't be, you, can, you know, but people don't, yeah, they don't, they don't follow that. Yeah. They, you know. Yeah. Uh, by the way, um, can I ask you, Al, hmm? um, it so happened at the time that my book came out and the, and the anniversary of the murders, Mr. Quentin Tarantino had a movie coming out and, of course, the movie, um, which is called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, had quite an impact and will probably come up for an Oscar this year or next year. Um, I, I wonder if you or any of your listeners had, had seen that film. Have you had a chance to see the film? I haven't, but I know Mike has. Yeah, I've seen it. it ah. uh, I quite enjoyed it. I, I thought there was the... Uh, well, I, I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it, no. but I... I felt that the end was very cathartic for somebody who has uh, followed this. I'm I'm 50 years old. I was born on August 5th, 1969. Wow. So, so, yeah. <laughs> so I've always felt sort of a, a drawn to this case because it was so close to the to the day I was born. But, yeah, uh, yeah. but watching well, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was 
fascinated by the turn that that Tarantino took, and and like I say, I felt a real sense of catharsis at that. Yes, well, I think that's an interesting take, particularly as you were born literally four days before the murders, and <laughs> with all due respect to your your growth, your quick growth, I think. What happened four days later didn't really register with you, did it, Mike? No, not really. <laughs> no, not really. No, not, not quite. <laughs> not quite. But, but, but getting back to that film, and I, and I, 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 I love for Al to see it because because I always say without giving you know giving too much away. First of all, it's Quentin Tarantino. Second of all, it's called Once Upon a Time in mm -hmm. Hollywood, and it is a fairy story. Um, yes, but, very, very much so. This, yeah, uh, so remember that. Uh, but I, but I must tell you this: that I had spent about several days at the Spawn Movie Ranch, and and Quentin Tarantino captured the evil scariness, the eeriness of uh, the freakishness of that ranch in the scene in which um, Brad Pitt visits the Spawn Movie Ranch and runs into these children of the damned, and I call them children of the damned. They were. Manson family members and that was a freaky experience and I can tell you from my personal experience of spending time at the Spawn Ranch it kind of sent uh, shivers down my spine because it reminded me of when I went there and how scary and kind of awful it was so it's worth it seeing worth it seeing for that and also of course the 1969 music uh, the era, the 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 the, the, cat, the way he captivated, captured Hollywood and and the movies and the rest of it was very well done by Tarantino. But don't forget, and, and I'll finish on this because I don't want to spoil the movie for anyone who hasn't seen it. Don't forget, uh, Mr. Tarantino has taken liberties with stories before. Um, outrageous bastards or inglorious bastards. Sorry, yeah, one of yeah. his earlier films. He had uh, he had Hitler being killed, so you've got to understand that he likes to exaggerate things um, for the benefit of the cameras. So you f you feel that Tarantino really captured the feeling of the time? Absolutely, absolutely, brilliantly. I mean, the music, the feel, uh, all the buildings, the cinema where where Sharon Tate goes to see herself in a movie. I used to go there uh, in in Westwood in in, in L.A. Um, mm -hmm. It was it was kind of a, a time time travel capsule back fifty years, and so I might even see it again, which I don't often do. But um, uh, again, I don't want to spoil it. But a lot of people loved it. Some people hated it. Some yeah. people said they should have it should have had a little um, beginning, little notes to say this is a fairy story. But you know that's Tarantino's style of of, of, of filmmaking. Now, the house at Cielo Drive is gone. Is that correct? That is correct. The house on Cielo Drive, eventually, after um, several, I mean, uh, there was, a, I think, Axel Springer or some rock star moved into the house, used it as a recording studio, left, and then finally the owners of the house ripped it down and changed the address, mm -hmm. changed the address. Uh, the other interesting thing is, um, but although Hollywood... Hollywood uh, m murder tours go past the Cielo Drive house. The other interesting little factor in the last year, the house on um, a Waverly Drive in Los Feliz, which was owned and where Lino and Rosemary Bianca lived and were murdered, 
that um, is still there, um, and it was just sold uh, for about $2.5 million to someone who is maybe going to turn it into uh, a, a maybe museum. So yeah. uh, the, the, the memories linger on. It's a it's a ghost hunters guy I think who bought bought yeah. the place and yes yes you're right the ghost hunter and his name is something like Zev Bagans, Zach Zach Bagans C H E A N S and he has a he has a museum in Las Vegas or outside Las Vegas and he's managed to acquire a lot of Mansono, Mansonia material including uh, some material that was given to him by um, Jason. Freeman Manson or Jason Freeman, uh, the grandson. So um, uh, he has a whole collection of Manson stuff at the museum. I've never been there, and I'm not really planning to go, but he's there. Yeah. I went to the Sharon Tate one. I had an interview with, um, I think his name's David Oman. Like he, he, yeah, he, sorry, I, I missed. Who, who did you say you went to interview? Um, David Oman. He owns the... Uh, house where Sharon Tate was killed, or it's not that house, it's, it's on the same property. Ah, and, and he claims oh, I didn't know that. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but they did, yeah, so you tell me, um, uh, it's still, I mean, the house is still pointed out by Hollywood murder tour people mm -hmm. at the murder house, but it's a completely new address, isn't it? Right, yes. right, yeah, and, and he's, he claims it's haunted, and he does tours there as well, and you can go visit him and, and on Halloween I think three years ago I, yes. I visited him yeah yeah well, but, but, well I mean I must say yeah there's a lot of legendary stuff that, that's um, around um, around these houses and uh, there are tours and there were very popular tours of the, of the Manson murder homes and, and and people drive by what's left of the Spahn Ranch which is which is not much but I can tell you that I, I listened to one tour guide explaining uh, the background to the Waverley Drive house, which is where the La Biancas were murdered, and they, they, they actually had complete fiction about some of the things that happened at that house. I know it because they said um, that, that one of the Manson girls um, uh, was spent half a year visiting the house. Well, I know that wasn't true because... Um, because she never joined the Manson family until a, a month before the murder. So there's always going to be an elaboration, an exaggeration about some of the places. So any of your listeners who go on the tour should take, um, take the tour with a, with a pinch of salt. Mm. Now, now d did you um, have any feelings about Star, the, the, the girl that was going to marry him uh, just before Well, I think, I mean, here, here's what I... Of course, I followed that. And here is a, another young woman. And I think Manson knew she was using him and he was using her. And supposedly, Starr took out a marriage license and they were going to get married. And it was fine because Manson, this gave Manson the, the, the limelight that he so desperately yearned for. He had this beautiful young woman who was going to marry him. Don't forget, and this is, this is one of the things that I think many people don't realize, that Manson, if he'd been executed when he was supposed to have been executed before the death penalty was abolished in California, you, we would not be having this conversation, I think. So we had these people like Starr, who was going to marry him, and Manson, who knew he would be used. And then she said, 
uh, I don't know if you know or you heard this, that, that they decided to call the marriage off because she wanted to marry him and then she would be able to claim the body and, and display it. God knows for who. Um, and so there was some pretty weird stuff that went on around this young lady who was going to marry Manson. But I'll tell you this, that Manson, until his dying day, still had uh, Sandra Good and uh, Squeaky From, who came along and hung around and tried to visit him up until his dying day. So he, he did have the, a handful of devotees who never gave up on him, including this new young star lady who showed up at the funeral as well, um, but I don't think had any intent to marry Mr. Manson. Uh, you don't think any of them are going to get out of prison, the, the, like the few that are still in? Well, I, I think um, they're going to continue for parole hearings. And the, and the closest person who came the closest to being um, paroled was Leslie Van Houten. And Leslie Van Houten only participated in, only I say, but <laughs> it was pretty brutal, yeah. participated in the murders of the La Bianca. And she has, three, on three different occasions, been, been recommended for parole by the parole board. But each time that happens, whoever was the governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jerry Brown, and the new one, Gavin Newsom, have, have, have ruled out parole for Leslie. And uh, Leslie's lawyers argue that she's a different woman. She was very young at the time. She knew not what she did, but it doesn't work. And it's a political thing. And any governor of California that allows any of the Manson people out on parole is going to come in for a lot of flack. So I think to play it safe, uh, even though parole boards say she should be let out, she's now reformed, she's helped other prisoners. Leslie Van Houten is a model, model perfect prisoner. They're not going to let her out because it's a political thing and they could get bad, a bad rap for doing it. So I'm afraid uh, that they're all going to be Tex and Leslie and Patricia are going to be stuck in prison for the rest of their lives. Well, the the type of brutal crime that they did, um, I don't I don't know. Even if they have uh, reformed or found God or whatever it is, it, it's not it's not enough to uh, to make up for what no. they you know. I mean, they, they well, well, that's what that's what everybody. I mean, when they have it, used to be Stephen Kay, who was one of the prosecutors who was working as an assistant for for Vincent Bugliosi. Stephen Kay spent his life went to went to dozens and scores of parole hearings and argued exactly what the way you just argued to say, well, why should we show them mercy? Because they never showed mercy to Sharon. They never showed mercy to the La Biancas. Um, I don't know. I mean, you could talk to prison reform people and they would argue uh, to the cows come home. Um, and as you indicated, I mean, uh, they were not very merciful when they killed everybody. And uh, now, should we give them mercy? I, I don't know. I mean, I think Leslie Van Houten is so young and, and pliable, but, but, you know, I'm not mm -hmm. arguing for her, and I thought maybe she should get out. But if she gets out, does that mean the others will get out? And if that's the case, it's not likely to happen. So with all the books on Manson and um, all the films and documentaries, um, in your book, Manson Exposed, what exactly do you want the reader to get out of it? So when they finish reading it, what is it you hope they, they take with them? Well, I think 
Um, I mean, the reason that I wrote the book, really, was kind of to go full circle. Because once Manson died, um, I also found that a lot of people, a lot of young people, don't know that Manson was the monster he was. Um, because over a period of 20 to 25 years, and if you look back at YouTube, you can see Manson perform on television in prime time. Diane Sawyer and Tom uh, and, and, and Ron Reagan Jr. and Arado Rivera and Tom Snyder. You can see Manson do his brilliant theatrical act, The Monster in Captivity. Mm-hmm. And Manson loved those little performances and Manson was theatrical. So the point, I guess I'm, I'm getting around to answering your question is this that there are many people, many young people, probably people born after 2000, who, who, who think that Manson um, was okay. And the reason I wrote the book was I was in Seattle visiting my daughter when two young men who came in to remodel the kitchen and we started talking about crime. And I asked them about Manson and they said, yeah, Manson, he's the guy who wanted to, to clean up our environment. He wanted clean water. Um, oh boy. They said he was he was okay. He never killed anybody. And I thought to myself, my God, if these men, uh, age thirty, think that, then then obviously their memories are a bit fuzzy. And and it's true. Now, if you talk to young people today, um, and they don't be- they don't believe Manson was as guilty as he was. They don't know the facts. So in a way, this is my excuse to get it out of my system. Fifty <laughs> years of Manson. I mean, when I traveled with the Beatles, I covered five weeks. When I wrote about Manson in my new book, it's 50 years. So I think it goes from A to Z and um, tells you the story that Manson was a victim of society, but at the same time, just because you had a terrible childhood and were badly treated, does that mean you turn out to be a mass murderer? I don't think so. And many people manage to emerge from an awful childhood to, to, to become um, good, good people. Yeah. Now, um, you have a website as well as the books for sale. So uh, what's your website? I do. Um, yeah, I have a website for Manson Exposed, the reporter's 50-year journey into madness and murder, and it's ivordavisbooks.com. And on the website, you can, you can probably listen and watch some, some of the interviews I've done, more than you ever wanted to know about me, but were afraid to ask. And you can read about read about the book, what it is, how to get it, and it's a kind of an interesting read because you can put it up, put it down, pick it up, uh, and every chapter is kind of self-contained, and it gives you the big picture. Fascinating. We'll have that on our website as well, so listeners can just do one click and pick up the book. So um, the the book we're talking about is Manson Exposed. It's a reporter's 50-year journey into madness and murder. And our guest has been the author, Ivor Davis. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me, and see you again. Bye. Thanks, Ivor. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.